0: Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, The novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective, Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she had millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 7 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation, by Rich Hosek. Chapter 21 Dave packed up his computer and the stack of photocopies he had made from the archives of the local newspaper into his backpack. He pulled up Detective Rainey's phone number and dialed. After four rings, it went to voicemail. Detective Rainey, it's me, Dave. I'm all done here at the library, so whenever you can pick me up, I'll be waiting. Just give me a call when you get here. Thanks. He headed for the entrance to see if the detective was already waiting for him in the parking lot. Dave, is that you? A familiar voice asked. Dave looked up at an Asian man in his late twenties, with spiked hair and stylish sunglasses. He wore a suit jacket with the sleeves rolled up, over a colorful shirt and clashing tie that hung loosely around the open neck. Yes? Dave answered, tentatively. It's me, Max, he said. Max? Dave asked. He had never met Max in person, and was not so much surprised by the man's identity, but by the fact that he was in the Danville Library. What are you doing here? Emily told me you would be here, Max explained. Why would you need to know where I was? Max took off his sunglasses and stuffed them in his jacket pocket. There's been an accident, he explained. Accident? Nate's car went off the road up in the foothills. Holy cow, Dave exclaimed. What was he doing up there? Max shrugged. I guess we'll ask him when he wakes up. Where is he? At the hospital. He's going to be okay, but I figured I would come and get you before you started to worry. What about Dr. Day? Dave asked. She's meeting us there. Come on. Max led Dave out of the library to his Dodge Charger. He popped open the trunk so Dave could store his backpack, then got behind the wheel while the nervous graduate student slid into the passenger seat and fastened his seatbelt. The car started with a poorly muffled roar, then Max put it into gear and tore out of the library parking lot. Dave pressed his hands against the dashboard. Nate used to do that, too, Max said, but I think he learned to appreciate and even trust my driving skills. How long did it take? Dave asked. A couple of years. Max backed off a bit, wanting to put his passenger at ease, and started driving more like Dave was used to with Detective Rainey. Do you know who Nate was talking to in town? He said he was going to visit the local constabulary, Dave answered. Max laughed, shaking his head. (laughs) I wouldn't want to take him on and boggle. He didn't happen to mention any names, or if he was going somewhere else, he asked. No, that's all he said, and to call him when I was done. Max nodded. Did you tell anyone at the library you were here with Nate? Dave shook his head. No, no one, why? Just trying to think like Nate, covering all my bases, Max answered. They drove the rest of the way to the hospital in silence. Chapter 22 Nate opened his eyes. The light was blindingly bright. He squeezed his lids shut, raising his arm to shield his eyes. Relax. You're in the hospital. Again. I thought you hated the food, Jennifer said. Nate turned his head and squinted at the blurry figure seated to his right. His neck only turned part way, and he realized he was wearing a cervical collar. ''What happened?'' he asked. ''For some reason, you decided to drive off the side of a mountain,'' she replied. He remembered driving along the narrow road along the crest of the foothills, but nothing that would explain him ending up in a hospital. ''Do you remember any bright lights? Any voices calling out to you?'' Jennifer asked. Nate rolled his eyes. ''No, I did not have a near-death experience. Not today, not ever,'' he replied firmly. Jennifer shrugged. ''That's not surprising.'' You were just unconscious, not clinically dead, this time. What are you doing here? Nate asked, changing the subject. Wow, I didn't know you'd be so glad to see me. How did you know I was here? How long have I been out? A few hours. No major injuries, thank goodness for all the airbags in your car. But the doctors were worried that you were out for so long. They were asking how many pain pills you usually take. I did not lose control because I took too much oxycodone. Do you remember what happened? Jennifer asked. No, but I was not impaired, Nate insisted. Okay. You didn't answer my question. Oh, right. Max called me. Max? How did he know I was here? Because, Max answered from the doorway, I'm still your emergency contact. Nate's old partner entered, followed by Dave. Hey, Doc, Max said to Jennifer. Did you have to kiss him to wake him up? No, I just read him the hospital menu she said. That'll do it, Max grinned. All right, you two, Nate said as he struggled to sit up in the bed. Who do I have to speak with to get out of here? You think that's a good idea, boss? Max asked. No broken bones, no internal injuries, just got a three-hour nap. I'm good to go. Besides, I'm so hopped up on Oxy, I can't feel a thing. Jennifer's eyes widened. I'm kidding. I feel like shit, but I don't need to stay here to do that. Jennifer looked up at Max. He can't remember what happened. Well, that doesn't sound like someone ready to walk out of a hospital. I remember what the deductible on my health insurance is, and I'm not going to see if I can hit it in one day. He searched for the call button for the nurse and pressed it. Where are my clothes? He asked, realizing he was wearing a hospital gown. Max nodded toward the closet. Nate swung his feet over the side of the bed. He felt a little dizzy, but sat still a moment until it passed. A nurse walked in. He saw Nate trying to get out of the bed. Sir, I don't think that's a good idea, he cautioned, as he rushed to Nate's side to catch him in case he fell. Well, I haven't had a good idea in months, so that's nothing new. He hopped off the bed and held out his hand where an IV needle was taped in place. Would you mind removing this? You can't let him go like this, can you? Jennifer asked the nurse. Legally, I can't stop him if he wants to check himself out. But I do strongly suggest that you wait for the doctor to see you. No, thanks. I want to sleep in my own bed and eat my own food. I'll make an appointment to see my doctor in the morning. The nurse looked at him skeptically. I promise, Nate added. The nurse shrugged, then carefully removed the needle from the back of Nate's hand and taped some gauze over the wound. Nate removed the neck brace, then shuffled over to the closet and pulled out his clothes. He looked at everyone staring at him. A little privacy, please. They all filed out of the room, including the nurse. Nate slipped out of the gown then put on his pants and shirt and sat on the chair Jennifer had been in to pull on his socks and shoes. He pulled the rest of his belongings out of the plastic bag his clothes had been shoved into, put on his watch, and shoved the rest of the items into various pockets. He stood up, walked into the bathroom where he ran the water until it was cold, then splashed some on his face. He looked into the mirror. A memory came back to Nate of looking in the rearview mirror of his car and seeing the grill of the gray Hummer. Max, he called. Max ran into the room. Are you all right? he asked. Nate dried off his face and looked at his old partner. I didn't drive off that road. Someone forced me off. A gray Hummer. I didn't get the plate. What? I said someone tried to kill me or scare me, but he didn't do either one. Nate, are you sure? Nate nodded. We should go up to the accident site. Take a look. It's getting dark, Nate. Why don't we just tell the local cops and let them figure it out? Tell the local cops what? Chief Lewis asked. The police chief stood in the center of Nate's hospital room, still in uniform. I heard about the accident, but just found out it was you ten minutes ago. What the hell happened? Someone ran me off the road, Nate replied. The chief didn't seem to find the information urgent. That was the first thing my guys checked. There were no other tire marks up there. No debris except what you left tumbling into that ravine. Gray Hummer passed me going the opposite direction. "'Then turned around and bumped me off the road,' Nate said with certainty. "'Look, Chief,' Max interjected. "'I've known this guy for years. He's not one to make something like that up.' "'Lewis nodded. "'I've known him a long time, too. "'Okay, I'll put out a bolo for a gray Hummer. "'But unless we find one with paint from Nate's SUV on the front bumper, "'I've got nothing else to go on except the word of a man who suffered a severe concussion.' "'Brian,' Nate pleaded. "'Nate, I spoke to the doctor.' You shouldn't have been driving with that much oxy in your system, he said in a low voice. Out of friendship, I'll keep that off my report. Max looked to Nate, questioningly. Nate shook his head. I wasn't high. I wasn't impaired. Someone ran me off that road. Okay, Max said. Let me get you home and we'll sort it out in the morning, he turned to Chief Lewis. Thank you, Chief. I'm sure he'll be more appreciative once he's gotten a good night's rest. I have no doubt. Lewis assured him. Nate Rainey's a stand-up guy, and just take care of him, will you? I will, Max promised. Nate looked at the two men as if they had just betrayed him, then walked past them into the hall. Chapter 23 Nate sat in the passenger seat of Jennifer's van as they drove through the Siesta Valley toward Oakland. She was uncharacteristically silent on the trip back. Nate had expected her to grill him about whether he had had any psychic experiences while he was unconscious, but instead she turned on the radio, and they listened to a pop music station that fuzzed in and out until they made it past the mountains and were in sight of the Bay Bridge. Sorry to make you come all the way out here, Nate said. Dave mentioned that you had some meeting you were supposed to go to. It was just a strategy session with some of my friends in the department about getting a new class on schedule, nothing urgent. Nate nodded. Did Dave tell you if he found anything interesting at the library? I didn't talk to him about the case, Jennifer replied. Did you find anything interesting before you got run off the road? He appreciated that she accepted his story about what happened without question. Maybe, he answered. But I want to see what Dave dug up before I tell you about it. Okay. She changed the subject. From what I heard, your car is pretty much totaled, she said. Nate sighed. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to add a new car payment to my budget. You have insurance, don't you? Yes, but it's not going to cover a new car. So get a used one. This old thing has been working for me since I started school. Jennifer patted the dash of the VW affectionately. She's got another hundred thousand miles in her. The vehicle's engine sputtered as if in reply. Nate looked at Jennifer with a raised eyebrow. Okay, get a new car then, she said, smiling. We'll switch to tap water and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I'll be able to manage. I have some investments I can tap into, Nate said. He wanted to avoid revisiting the topic of dissolving their joint venture, at least until after this case. The angle of a recently released convict and unrecovered cash and valuables from a heist intrigued him. He wondered if it had anything to do with whatever was going on with the Foreman family. There probably wasn't a connection, but it felt like a real case and the prospect of putting his detective's hat back on after investigating unfaithful pets pushed aside his worries about money and, he was surprised to discover, the chronic ache in his shoulder. Ooh, I like this song, Jennifer said, responding to the pop tune playing on the radio. She turned up the volume and began singing along, dancing in her seat. Come on, you know the words, she said, urging Nate to join in. Nate didn't recognize the song. He didn't really follow any new artists or listen to the radio. When he did find himself listening to music, it was something from his teenage years, but he found Jennifer's absolute abandonment of any decorum to lose herself in the lyrics and the melody, a welcome distraction from the weight of the day's events. When they arrived at Nate's house, he thanked Jennifer and opened the passenger side door. Do you need a hand with anything? She asked. Now I'm fine, Nate assured her. He started to slide out of the van when Jennifer put a hand on his arm. She had a sincere look of concern on her face. Nate? Do you think whoever ran you off the road is going to try it again? He shook his head. No, it was probably just some off-the-books weed farmer who thought I was a fed. Jennifer seemed unconvinced. The last two guys who tried to kill me are in jail, and there's nothing about this case we're on that would put me in danger. Dave mentioned he found out something about a bank robbery, she said. A 15-year-old robbery. I don't think it's connected. My incident was just a random act of violence, and I thought you didn't talk to him about the case. Maybe a little, she said. Her look still conveyed a degree of worry. Nate smiled. Hey, I can handle myself. I promise it's nothing. But thanks for worrying about me. Jennifer grinned. I was actually thinking what an inconvenience it would be to have to find a new office. Nate shook his head. Good night, Dr. Day. Good night, Detective Rainey. He slid out of the van and offered a curt wave as Jennifer drove away. Nate entered his house and headed straight for the refrigerator. He didn't have the energy to cook anything, but he hadn't eaten since that morning, so he decided to fix himself a sandwich. As he layered provolone cheese and Genoa salami on a pumpernickel rye with Dijon mustard and a homemade remoulade, Madge pressed her nuzzle against his leg and whined. Nate looked over at her empty food and water bowls. Did no one feed you? he asked. Madge trotted over to the bowls expectantly. Nate put the sandwich aside, fed the dog, and filled her water bowl. Then he plated his sandwich, grabbed an Evian, and carried them into his office. There was a stack of papers on Jennifer's side of the desk, likely the materials Dave had gathered from the library. He wasn't surprised that the graduate assistant and Max had made it back to San Francisco faster than he and Jennifer had. Max had offered to drive Nate home, but Nate decided he would rather risk Jennifer's interrogation over having to suffer under Max's judgmental attitude. He told Max, sarcastically, that he and Dave could catch up on Nate's social life. Nate slipped out of his jacket and draped it over his chair, then sat down and ate half the sandwich, washing it down with the sparkling water. He opened his computer and called up the website for an online car dealership he had seen on TV. He found the same make, model, and a later year of the SUV he had wrecked. The price was more than he was expecting, but the convenience of arranging financing and delivery to his home offset his usually frugal instincts. It took less than an hour to confirm his financial information, and apparently the income from his police pension was enough to get him approved. Once he confirmed a delivery window for the next morning, Nate turned his attention to the blank whiteboard behind him. He stood up, grabbed a red marker, and wrote in the upper left corner, Gray Hummer, then underlined it several times. Next, he picked up a black marker and drew a line down the middle of the board. One side he labeled Foreman's, and the other Everly's. Under the foreman's side, he began making a bulleted list of what he knew about them, which wasn't much. Foreman's. Marcia, IT web design. Greg. Works at big box store. Son. Talking to ghost? Other children? House remote. Recently remodeled. Then he had turned its attention to the Everly's side. Everly's. Dale. Released convict. Wife. Killed trying to escape. Former owners of foreman house broke into bank, missing money and valuables, route between bank and home. He drew a line between route between bank and home and Gray Hummer. Nate noted that he didn't know the name of Dale Everly's wife. He turned on his phone and pulled up one of the news articles on the robbery, then wiped away the word wife and replaced it with the name Maureen. He stared at the board. It was just a start. Once he began his research, he would be adding to the lists and creating others. Then he looked at the stack of copies and photostats resting on Jennifer's side of the desk. He capped his marker and flipped open the file folder sitting on top of the papers. Inside was a printout of the initial mail they had received from Greg Foreman. He scanned the text until he found what he was looking for, but hoping he wouldn't find. The name of the ghost, the boy Danny, said he could see and hear. Maureen. Nate took a drink from his Evian before returning to the whiteboard, wiping away the word son and replacing it with Danny. Then he drew a dotted line between the name Maureen and the word ghost on the opposite side. He knew that Jennifer would infer all kinds of meaning into this link, confirmation that the boy was talking to the ghost of a woman who had died at the house. But Nate's mind went in a different direction. He turned on his laptop computer and began searching for all the information he could find on the Everlys and their foiled bank robbery. There was a lot. He printed out some of the articles, many of the pictures, and added them to the board along with additional lists in different colors and sizes. Some were facts that he had drawn from various sources. Others were questions that needed to be answered. He erased a spot in the middle of the dotted line connecting Danny and Marine and drew a heavy question mark there and circled it. Then beneath that, he wrote, Diary? The email from Greg Foreman had specified that the boy had discovered a box of photos in the attic. But had there been a diary there as well? Is that how he knew details about the woman's life? Nate rubbed his right shoulder. The pain meds they had given him at the hospital were beginning to wear off, and the aggravation to his injury from tumbling down the side of a mountain, coupled with all the activity he had engaged in since returning home, were beginning to make themselves felt. He knew he was going to pay for it in the morning. From inside the pocket of his jacket, he pulled out his prescription bottle and shook out two pills. He didn't want to admit it, but Max's concern about Nate's increasing dependency on the medication was warranted. Nate promised himself he would see his doctor about it soon. He had seen co-workers, fellow officers, fall into the well of addiction following injuries before, and was acutely aware that he was teetering on the edge. Madge nudged him. He looked down at the dog, then at his watch, surprised to discover it was well past midnight. You're right, sweet girl. It's getting late. He tossed the pills in his hand to the back of his mouth, swallowed the remainder of the Evian, and turned off the lights as he and Madge headed off to bed. But as he passed through the kitchen, he second-guessed his plan to lie down in his bedroom and try to drift off. He had spent a good part of the day unconscious and didn't really feel tired. He returned to the kitchen and pulled a bottle of wine from a rack on the counter. It had been months since he had had more than a sip from his modest collection of vintages, but the growing ache in his shoulder promised to keep him from any opportunity to rest unless he supplemented the pills with a glass or two of the Cabernet Sauvignon he was holding in his hands. Nate pulled a glass from the cabinet and a corkscrew from the drawer, then carried his midnight libation to the living room. He sat down on the sofa, opened the wine, picked out an old movie on the television, and put his feet up on the coffee table. Madge jumped up and nestled down beside him. Nate ruffled the hair atop her head as he sipped from his glass watching Laurel and Hardy wrestling a piano up an impossibly steep hill. Chapter 24 Jennifer drove up to Nate's house under the late morning sun. Her hair was still damp from the shower she had taken at her health club, and she rubbed at the crick in her neck she developed from sleeping on an air mattress that slowly deflated every night. The van life definitely didn't agree with her. As she stepped out of the microbus and walked up to the front door, she fished around in her backpack for the key. She pulled open the outer door and reached for the lock before remembering that Nate had replaced it with a keypad. She put the key away and entered the code he had given her. The lock flashed a red light and emitted what she interpreted as a disappointed beep. Wrong code? She tried again and was once more met with a flash of red and a scolding tone. She reached into her pack and rummaged around for the slip of paper she had written the entry code on. But before she could find it, the inside door swung open. Nate was standing there, still half asleep, uncharacteristically ruffled and wearing the same clothes from the previous day. The sun was at Jennifer's back, and Nate squinted at her. Oh, it's you, he said, then turned around and trundled off. Good morning, Jennifer said as she stepped inside and watched as Nate wandered over to the sofa and collapsed on it, face first. He must have fallen asleep there the previous night. Rough night, she asked, not expecting an answer. There was an empty bottle of wine on the coffee table and next to it was one of the prescription bottles Nate kept close at hand since his last surgery. He wasn't a very open person to begin with, but anything that made him appear vulnerable in any way he was especially guarded about. He started snoring. Jennifer grabbed a blanket that had fallen to the floor and draped it over Nate. She heard a whine from the kitchen and spotted Madge standing over an empty bowl. She scooped out some food from the bin Nate kept Madge's kibble in and dumped it in, then topped off the dog's water. I wish you could talk, Madge. You are probably the only one who knows what he's going through. The dog ignored her, hungrily gobbling up her breakfast. Jennifer continued on through the kitchen to the office. She noticed the whiteboard right away, glad to see that Nate had taken such an interest in the case. She crossed around to her side of the desk and opened the folder sitting there. Dave's work, clearly. A stack of copies made from the Danville News Gazette's microfilm records, as well as other documents, with handwritten comments on sticky notes throughout. She sat down and started reading through them, starting with some older stories about legends handed down from local indigenous tribes, other articles about the gold rush days, and then a series of clippings about a foiled bank robbery. Dave had highlighted the portion of one of the stories that indicated an address. Jennifer compared it to the address mentioned in the email from the foreman's. They were the same. Then she looked up at the board Nate had filled with his lists. The names at the top caught her attention. She looked back at the newspaper story and scanned down until she saw where Dave had circled the name of one of the robbers, Maureen Everly. Emily sauntered in and sat down on the chair next to the desk, holding a supersized cup of coffee. What's with Sleeping Beauty in the living room? she asked. Jennifer shrugged. You know how it is. Sometimes there's a Twilight Zone marathon on cable and you fall asleep on the sofa in front of the TV. I know how it is. I didn't know you had cable in your van. Jennifer shot her assistant a glare. You're keeping that between us, remember? Emily made a show of looking around the room. Yeah, I remember. Her eyes lingered on the whiteboard. Looks like Nate didn't kill Dave after all. Why would Nate want to kill me? Dave asked as he entered the office. He had a sheaf of papers in his hand and his backpack slung over one shoulder. Have you met you? Emily asked. Very funny, Dave said. What do you have there? Jennifer asked, eyeing the papers. More research on the Everleys? Dave nodded and placed the stack in front of Jennifer. Yeah, I pulled up some recent articles from the internet. It's quite a story. Nate thinks so, too, Jennifer said, nodding toward the whiteboard. Dave stepped around the desk to get a closer look. Looks like we might have a case. Let's get the ball rolling on this one. See if they'll allow us to come out and talk to Danny this weekend, Jennifer said. Are we taking any gear? Yes, but we won't need the full stakeout package. Just the video cameras, mobile sensors, the usual first contact stuff. I'll go see what we have in the van already, Dave suggested. Good idea, Emily said, more to Jennifer than Dave. Jennifer's eyes went wide. Wait, she said, almost shouting. Dave froze, turned back toward Dr. Day. That can wait till later, Jennifer said, covering. Okay, Dave said. I'll go up to my office and email the foreman's. Dave left, heading up to the bedroom on the second floor that served as his private workspace. He used it primarily for his thesis research, but also the work he did for Dr. Day and the bookkeeping he did for Nate. On his way up, he checked to see if Nate was still asleep on the sofa. He was gone, and Madge had spread out across the warm spot Nate had vacated. As Dave climbed the stairs, he heard the shower in the master suite turn on. Nate let the hot water cascade over his head. It lessened the headache pounding away inside his skull to a small degree, but not enough for him to forget the reason for it. The only positive thing about his hangover was the fact that it masked the pain from his shoulder. The hot water also served to loosen the stiffness in his damaged joint. He gently moved it in increasingly larger motions, stretching the repaired muscles and ligaments. He complained to his doctor that it felt like there was broken glass in the joint, and occasionally it would light up a sharp point of pain. The doctor had told him it was possible there was some damage to the cartilage. But he didn't want to do the procedure to check it out until he had healed more from his last surgery. The advice was to keep the movement to a minimum. So much for that. He had grown used to showering with his left hand during the months after the shooting when his right arm was in a sling. He would position his body so the shower spray would rain down on his right side while he used his left arm to gently clean the rest of himself. It was one of the few moments in the day when he got some relief from the pain which hadn't come from a bottle of one kind or another. Nate turned off the water, then draped himself in a towel while he stood in front of the bathroom mirror. He used his left hand to wipe part of the fogged glass clear. His eyes were still red, and the morning stubble darkened his chin. He started the process of shaving. When he was done, Nate picked out his suit and shirt, deciding to forego a tie. He slipped into some loafers and headed downstairs to face Jennifer. Trouble sleeping? Jennifer asked. Nate sat down before answering. Just a bit of insomnia, he said as he opened his computer to check his email. Nice work, she said, nodding at the whiteboard. I thought you'd like that, he replied. You really can't allow yourself to believe it could be a ghost, she asked. I know you do, but there is a much more likely explanation. That Danny found a diary along with Maureen's photos and is pulling the details about her from that? Nate nodded. You know what I'm going to ask you, Jennifer said. Keep an open mind, Nate replied dryly. And not only about the foremans. I managed to get an appointment with a friend of mine for Eleanor. He's a professional psychic. Good. I wouldn't want you to take my mother to an amateur. He's very well respected, she replied defensively. Well, so much for trying to get her to see this whole thing as a waste of time. Nate started swiping and tapping at the trackpad on his computer, attempting to end the conversation. So that's what it was for you? Jennifer asked. You thought I would help you debunk some psychic and destroy your mother's belief that she's communicating with your father? Nate felt embarrassed hearing Jennifer reflect his attitude back at him. It made him sound arrogant and uncaring. Sorry, you're right, Nate admitted. I just don't want people to take advantage of her. Sam isn't like that, and he won't charge her. Okay, whatever you think is best. I trust you, he said dismissively. Well, I'm afraid I'll need more than just your trust, Jennifer said. Nate regarded her suspiciously. You should come with us. It would mean a lot to Eleanor. He sighed, resigned. When? He asked. This afternoon. We should probably take an Uber. The van is still full of gear from the last gig. A horn honked just as Nate's phone dinged with a notification chime. No need. My new SUV is here. God bless the internet. Chapter 25. Marcia read the email on the iPad Greg had handed her. It was from someone connected to the parapsychologist they had seen on television, responding to the form they had submitted on her website. The message let them know that Dr. Day was interested in investigating their case, and included a list of questions they needed to answer, ending with a very politely worded request for an on-site visit. I don't like the sound of that, Marcia said when she finished. On-site visit? We're not some science experiment. She is a professor. I don't want Danny to be poked and prodded. Dr. Day is not like that, Greg insisted. I've looked at her website. Most of the cases are completely anonymous. But not all of them. I guess some people want the notoriety. Well, I don't, and I don't want Danny to be known as the ghost boy. Neither do I, Greg agreed. She also exposes frauds and debunks potential paranormal incidents when they have perfectly non-supernatural explanations. If this woman has answers, we should do whatever we can to get them. Marcia knew he was right, but she was still wary of bringing a stranger into their home. Danny was her little boy. She didn't know what Maureen was, a ghost or a manifestation of Danny's imagination. But if it was the latter, Maureen was quite a sophisticated fantasy for a ten-year-old boy. Danny was smart and creative but usually a boy's imaginary friend was a talking bear or an alter ego who was the one who stole Oreos from the cookie jar. The details Danny told Marcia about Maureen were more than a preteen's impression of an adult. They had consulted their pediatrician, but he was of the imaginary friend's school, insisting that he would grow out of it eventually. Okay, she relented, but she has to keep our names, where we live and work, all of it completely confidential and no hooking him up to any machines or putting him in any sort of sensory deprivation tank. Look, if Dr. Day and her people make you or Danny the least bit uncomfortable, we pull the plug, Greg assured her. Marcia looked at her husband, a gaze that was both prodding and pleading. Okay, she finally said. Let's do it. Maureen was getting very adept at moving around the house at will. She was still reluctant to go outside, but did venture onto the front porch from time to time and the small patio the foreman's had constructed off the back door so she could more easily watch Danny and Daisy play in the yard. The conversation she overheard between Danny's parents made her concerned, though she didn't exactly know why. She went up to Danny's room where he was drawing. Hi, Marine, Danny said without looking up from his drawing. Marine smiled. It seemed Danny was able to sense when she was in his room without needing to see her. Hi, Danny. What are you drawing? A pirate spaceship he replied. He put aside his pencils and held up the sheet of paper for her to inspect. Marine marveled at Danny's creativity, though there was a consistent pirate theme to most of his creations, even when they took place in outer space. That's fantastic. Space pirates are good, Danny explained. They wouldn't hurt you. Why would they want to hurt you? They don't, and I don't think the lady mom and dad want me to talk to would either. She's not really a ghostbuster. Oh, that's good. Moraine replied. But you shouldn't worry about me. I can take care of myself. Okay, Danny said, apparently satisfied with her explanation as he began coloring his creation. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's fiction podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniacs newsletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit Rainyandday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E.com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.